Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Well, welcome back to another edition of Then and Now, where we study the past to help shape a better future. I want to get right into this session. I've got a lot of ground to cover. We received a lot of listener feedback by email this week. So much of it, in fact, that I'm going to use it to cover this whole session. That's unusual. That's a first. Evidently, the last two podcasts have helped a lot of people understand eschatology a lot better. So they've really responded in a big way. And I'm so glad to hear from all of you. And I hope you'll keep that email coming in. Let's pray before we begin. Dear God, we're so thankful for the word that you have sent into the world to help us understand what you've done for us. And we're grateful for your son who became flesh and dwelt among us and revealed your nature and your work to us. And we pray that you'll be with us as we look at the history of that redemption and apply it to our lives in a way that will help us bring much glory to you and much fruit into your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I got a whole bunch of listener comments and questions from the emails that you have sent to me this week, and I want to share a lot of those with our listeners. I'll keep the names to myself. So if you send in one of these questions, you're not going to have your name mentioned. Uh, But all these are really good comments and questions, and I think all of us will benefit by looking at them and responding to them. So here we go. Buckle your seatbelt, and we'll get right into some of these listener comments. Questioner or commenter number one said, I look forward to hearing just who the Nicolaitans were, since they're mentioned by Apostle John in the book of Revelation specifically, which means that they were on Jesus' mind, and Jesus hates the practices of this group. So just what were their practices? Well, in my reply, I said, in his article about Thyatira in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, E.J. Banks suggested that the Nicolaitans were Christians who had compromised their high moral and ethical standards by being a part of the trade guilds and their feasts that were connected with pagan idolatry and immoral practices. Uh, Here's what E.J. Banks says about that in his article in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. He says, Thyatira was specially noted for the trade guilds which were probably more completely organized there than in any other ancient city. Every artisan in the city belonged to one of the trade guilds, and every guild, which was an incorporated organization, possessed property in its own name, made contracts for great constructions, and wielded wide influence. Powerful among them was the Guild of Coppersmiths. Another was the Guild of Dyers who dyed cloth purple, who it is believed made use of the matter root that grew locally there to make their purple dye stuffs. A member of this guild seems to have been Lydia of Thyatira, who, according to Acts 16, verse 14, sold her purple dyes in Philippi. The color obtained by the use of this dye is now called Turkish red. The guilds were closely connected with the Asiatic religion of the place. Pagan feasts with which immoral practices were associated were held, and therefore the nature of the guilds was such that they were opposed to Christianity. It was taught by many of the early church that no Christian might belong to one of the guilds because of this immoral practices and pagan idolatry that was associated with it. And so thus, uh, the trade guilds became one of the greatest uh, opponents of Christianity in those early centuries. The Nicolaitans were supposedly immoral libertines 
who saw freedom in Christ as a license for all kinds of sin. And that would fit those compromisers in Thyatira and other places who compromised with the trade guilds and participated in the pagan idolatry and immoral feast that they had. And so uh, the Nicolaitans look like they may be that very group of compromisers who believe that they were free in Christ to participate in the trade guilds. There are some preterists today who think that same way, that everything in the New Testament was finished in AD 70 and ceased to have any application to us today. Therefore, they think we are free to live however we want to. But they have thrown the baby out with the bathwater along with the bathtub, the dishcloth, and everything else with it. Those folks are making the same mistake that the licentious libertines and Nicolaitans of the first century made. Now, the second question or comment that I got in the mail this week from one of the listeners is this one. Regarding my fellow listener who wondered if you might be getting a little too carried away in all these historical studies, I appeal to you to discount what he said and pay no heed. Keep your pedal to the metal. Don't let his comment trick you into backing off. If Paul was able to preach the gospel to the whole world between 50 and 70 A.D., how much more is it necessary that we get the whole council out in the next 20 years? Well, my reply to this good brother here is, thanks for that very encouraging feedback. Lord willing, I will definitely keep my pedal to the metal. The next question or comment was, Your messages are great because of the amount of research that goes into them. Preterism seems to make the pieces of the puzzle actually fit together. Although there are a couple of areas that I still need to figure out, for the most part with preterism, you don't need to make excuses anymore. I actually heard preachers, futurist preachers, say that All the disciples thought that the end was near, but they were mistaken. So in other words, they just trashed the infallibility of the Bible and put the apostles into the position of writing false prophecy and error. Well, my reply was, you made a great point about the infallibility of Scripture being adversely affected by the futurist idea that Jesus and the apostles were wrong when they taught that Jesus would return in their lifetime. Indeed, that is the reason why the preterist movement is growing exponentially right now. Futurists are finally beginning to wake up and smell the coffee. That is why we put up an exhibit booth every year at the Evangelical Theological Society. We want to keep that very message about the integrity of Jesus as a true prophet right in front of our futurist friends there at the Evangelical Theological Society so that they don't miss it. We want to keep it right in front of their eyes so that they hear it and see it because they need to know that Jesus was not mistaken, that he was correct when he said he was coming back in that first century generation. Well, another email here was saying this, I was wondering what you would say about the futurist objection to the preterist view, which says that all people in the first century must have seen the parousia if it occurred then. Therefore, why don't we have some documentation about it? Because they must have seen it if it occurred. I'm thinking that the heathen actually did not see the parousia and therefore could not report it. Jesus said that it would come as a thief in the night. A couple of years ago, a thief went through our neighborhood and got inside all the unlocked cars and stole cell phones, etc. We never knew he was there until we were missing stuff later. So perhaps the heathen in the first century never really saw Christ appear. Well, my comments are, you're on the right track about all the unbelievers in regard to seeing the parousia. That's close to what I think really happened. This is indeed a big objection that all futurists have against the preterist view. 
They have read all the expectation statements, and they know that the parousia was supposed to be a visible and experiential event. Since they are unaware of all the fulfillments documented in Josephus, Tacitus, Yosipon, and Eusebius, they assume that the parousia did not occur. However, according to Josephus, even the unbelievers actually saw and heard some incredible things at that time, but they did not understand what it was all about. The Christians knew what was happening and experienced all the benefits of it, but the unbelievers did not understand it. It was very much like the uh, ascension of Elijah on an angelic chariot. Elisha, his servant, was allowed to see it because he was spiritually tuned in like Elijah was. But the other 50 prophets who were watching that event did not see the angelic chariot. All they saw was a tornado whisk Elijah up into the sky. They thought he was killed by the tornado and went looking for his body around the countryside for three days. Elisha told them that Elijah had been taken to heaven, but they did not believe him. This is a good example of what probably happened in AD 70. The unbelieving Jews and Roman world saw and heard some things, but they were not allowed to see into the unseen realm like the Christians were. Therefore, they did not understand what all those things meant. But the Christians got all the heavenly rewards and relief from the persecution that they were expecting to receive at the parousia. It was a very experiential event for them. The dead saints were raised out of Hades in the unseen realm, while the living saints had their bodies changed from mortal to immortal, and they went into the unseen realm at that change, and then they were caught up together with the resurrected dead to be with Christ forever afterwards. Incidentally, I have a PDF lesson outline which documents all those fulfillments from the first century historians. If you'd like to have a copy of that document, it's called Matthew 24 Fulfillments. It's available for free. Simply email me and request it. The name of that again is Matthew 24 Fulfillments. I think it's probably about 20 pages where I document from all those first century historians all the fulfillments of Matthew 24 and some of the other related prophecies showing that those things really did occur and that they were seen and heard and experienced by the first century Christians and seen but not understood by the non-believers. Okay, the next question that I received this week in my email was this one. I look forward to all the good things you are sharing with us every week. I'm excited for the future to see how God will use the preterist view to turn the world upside down. Well, I'm just as excited as you are. Amen to that. And I appreciate you listening to our podcast. Another question that came in is, I have been giving thought to the idea about the judgments of God throughout the earth, spoken of in the Old Testament, and how God rides on a swift cloud. Those clouds that he surrounds himself with are sometimes doomy and gloomy. For instance, the tornado yesterday in the city of Moore, Oklahoma. Could we say that we were seeing God firsthand doing some of his works, forcing men to call upon him or to cry out to him? Along those same lines, David Shilton wrote many years ago that God didn't wind up the universe and let it go. I believe that God is still very intensely involved with his universe all the way up to today. That tornado yesterday might be considered by many an incredible force of nature, but the more accurate way to view it would be the ordinary activities of God. Well, I said, I think you're exactly right. Everything that happens in the world is by God's design. 
in order to mold us and shape us into his more useful servants. I'm certainly sure that uh, that tornado in Oklahoma was to accomplish the greater good for his people somehow or other. It may not look that way right now. It certainly looks like a devastating impact on a lot of people there in that city, and it was. But in the long term, some good will come out of that that would not have happened otherwise. Just think about all the Christians that are involved in helping them get their lives put back together and how there's going to be a lot of new people become Christians. There's a lot of good that will come out of that spiritually for God's kingdom. I'm sure that was in God's mind when he allowed that to happen. The next comment that I received is, I'm really glad that you and others spend so much time in the Word deciphering it for us. I wandered through a lot of dumb doctrines over the years and finally found my way into preterism. A couple things helped guide me. One is that I assumed that the Reformation of 500 years ago only went so far. And another thing is realizing that truth has an A through Z arrangement. And any one church or denomination usually only offers one or two of those letters in the alphabet, even though they think they teach the whole alphabet. I'm so glad that I got in contact with you and all the other preterists, especially you, because you believe in a rapture. I like that. A rapture answers so many questions and gives solid explanations to the verses that so plainly say something was going to happen physically to them then. It just seems that not believing in a rapture goes against the audience relevance and plain meaning rules that preterists cling to. Well, I really liked your comments. Just like you like the rapture, I like your comments. I couldn't agree more. I think it's very important for us to understand that the rapture occurred. It'll make a big difference in our understanding of Scripture. There's a lot of text in our Bible that I never understood until I saw the rapture. That has opened up so many texts of Scripture to understanding. And that's why so many people will make no further progress in their understanding until they come to grips with the rapture. It's holding them back. They're refusing to let God help them understand Scripture better by rejecting the rapture. Okay, the next question. I was wondering why there wasn't any reports or writings about Christians that seemed to be here one day and gone the next. I guess with the degree of persecution and carnage that was occurring during the Deuteronic persecution, that the true Christians could vanish and no one would really be concerned about it. People thought they were just killed in the Neuronic persecution. Well, my reply to that very, very good comment was, one of the reasons the disappearance of the elect was not noticed was that there were very few Christians left alive after the Neuronic persecution so that by the time of the parousia, there were not many left to be raptured. Furthermore, because of the Neuronic persecution, the disappearance of Christians would have been considered nothing more than just an arrest in the night and taken away to be killed. No one would dare inquire to the local authorities about those missing Christians for fear of being accused of being a Christian also. This is the same kind of thing that happened to the Jews during Nazi Germany. Whole ghettos of Jews disappeared in the night. They were arrested in the night, put on a train, and shipped off to a work camp and were never seen again. No one knew for sure what happened to them. Everyone thought they were arrested in the night and taken away to be killed. Nobody thought they were raptured. Same way in the first century. The Neuronic persecution was going on full steam ahead at that time, and nobody would have thought anything about the disappearance of Christians at that point. They would simply have thought that they were arrested in the night and taken away to be killed. 
Okay, the next question that we have here. Could you explain Romans 8, verses 18 and 19? It is not quite clear to me. Well, my reply is, some background information first. This letter of Paul was written from Corinth to the Romans near the end of his third missionary journey in about A.D. 58, just before he went to Jerusalem, where he was arrested and sent as a prisoner to Rome. The two letters to the church at Corinth were written just before this letter to the Romans. So we need to keep that in mind as we read these words here in Romans 8. Paul had already written his two letters to the Corinthians, and he was there at Corinth where they had access to those two letters at the time he wrote this letter to the Romans. So let's keep that in mind because there are going to be some similar things in uh, both of those letters to the Corinthians that apply to our text here in Romans chapter 8. Notice that Paul says in Romans 8.17 that suffering with Christ in the persecution was proof that they were children of God and was earning for them an eternal weight of glory that would be given to them at Christ's soon return. Now think about that. An eternal weight of glory would be given to them at the parousia. Did they get that glory? Did they know they got it? Did they experience that glory in any cognitive way? The unbelieving Jews were persecuting the saints because they thought they were the true children of God. But Paul encourages the Christians with the promise that at the parousia, Christ would reveal who his true children were the Christians, and those saints would then see the glory of Christ revealed to them at the parousia. Now think about that. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us, he says. He uses the word mellow there. That glory was about to be revealed to them. Now, question, what does the word revealed mean? Does that mean they're going to see it and know about it? Well, if it doesn't, then why in the world does Paul use the word revealed if they're not going to see it and even know that it occurred and not experience that glory in any way? I think there are some implications there that we need to be careful in how we handle. He says again, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 12, there's a similar thought expressed. And by the way, it was written also before Paul wrote the book of Romans. So they probably had a copy of it right there in Rome as well as in Corinth where he was. And so they would be aware of what he had already taught to the Thessalonians about this. And notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, a similar thought is expressed to what Paul is saying to the Romans here about the persecution and the glory that was going to be revealed to them at the parousia. The Thessalonian Christians were suffering persecution at the time he wrote his two letters to them. And Paul promises them that they would receive relief from that persecution when the Lord Jesus was revealed from heaven in flaming fire against their adversaries. Paul says that those suffering worthy saints would glorify him on that day and marvel at him in the presence of all who had believed. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. Now, think about that. Did those living saints, living and remaining saints there at Thessalonica glorify him on that day of his coming and marvel at him in the presence of all who had believed? Then they would have been aware of it afterwards, right? If they experienced that, if they glorified him on that day and marvel at him, 
they would be aware of his coming, right? Then why don't they talk about it later if they're still around? That is a very clear expectation that Paul gave to those saints there at Thessalonica and in Roman as well. They were expecting to see Christ revealed from heaven and experience relief from the persecution and share in the glory of Christ at his coming. That is the same thing that Paul is referring to here in Romans 8. That glory of Christ was about to be revealed, at which time those saints who had suffered shame for his name would be revealed in front of their persecutors as being the true children of God. They would share in his glory at the parousia. Those saints who died in the persecution would be raised in their new immortal bodies, while those saints who remained alive on earth would have their mortal bodies changed into immortal bodies. Then both the resurrected dead and the changed living saints would be gathered and raptured into the presence of Christ to live with him forever afterwards. The bodily change of the living is implied here in the context of Romans 8, verse 23, when Paul tells them about the redemption of their bodies. The living would have their mortal bodies changed or redeemed from mortality into immortality. That was the bodily change that is referred to here when Paul says, they would have their bodies redeemed, the redemption of their bodies at the parousia. The next uh, comment that we have is, they said, another text that bothers me is Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. It seems to relate to the resurrection somehow. Indeed, it does. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Those of you who are listening may want to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, and look at that text while we talk about it. Here, Paul is talking about the same bodily change for the living and remaining ones that he mentioned in his two letters to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 54, he talks about not all of us are going to sleep or die, some of us, he says, will live and remain until the parousia. We're not all going to die, but we're all going to be changed. Those of us who live and remain until the parousia will be changed, he says. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, he repeats that change idea there where he talks about we groan while we're in this earthly body because of the suffering and the persecution. We groan not because we want to be disembodied, but rather because we want to be clothed upon with our new immortal bodies without being disembodied first. Clothed upon, clothed over the top of their present existing bodies so that their mortality is swallowed up and changed into immortality. And so that's the change idea that Paul is talking about here in Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. He was telling those saints there in Philippi in the first century that those of them who remained alive on earth until the parousia would have their mortal bodies transformed or changed into immortal, glorious bodies just like Christ has. Apostle John refers to that same idea of bodily change in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where he says that he does not know exactly what we will be like when Christ appears and when we're changed. But he says, I do know that we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he really is in his glorious, immortal body. And John says that we will get bodies just like Christ, glorious, immortal body. 
They would be changed. Their mortal bodies would be changed to be like Christ's glorious body. I think that helps us understand what Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21 is talking about. It's not talking about a collective body being transformed from their state of death, covenantal death, into a state of covenantal life. Although that may be a valid concept, that's not what this text is talking about. Philippians 3.20 and 21 is talking about individual bodies being changed at the parousia. It's not talking about the church as a collective body being transformed from a state of death into a state of covenantal life. I don't deny that that collective body concept is valid. It certainly is valid. But I don't believe Philippians 3.20 and 21 is talking about it. There's other texts like Ezekiel 37, which may apply to that collective body concept. But Philippians 3, 20 and 21 is not talking about that collective body resurrection. Okay, the next question here that I want to deal with says, I've read a great deal of your material, but I'm still not quite certain how the following text fits your view. It sure seems like the righteous were the ones being left behind and the unrighteous were taken away by the flood. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says that some would be taken and some would be left. And the uh, the listener here who wrote this comment is asking me how I understand that text Am I applying that to the rapture? Am I saying that those who were taken were the righteous and those who were left were the wicked? Or is this not a rapture text at all? And here's what I responded to this good dear brother. In my rapture book, Expectations Demand a First Century Rapture, I explain this text in connection with Luke chapter 17 verses 31 through 37 where Jesus implies that it was indeed the wicked who would be taken away and killed and consumed just like the vultures do to their prey. There are some futurists who see this as a rapture text, but none of the preterist rapture proponents take that position as far as I know. I certainly do not take that position. I don't see this as a rapture text at all. Luke 17, verse 37, clinches the meaning of the text for me. The disciples asked Jesus where those wicked folk would be taken away to, and Jesus says they would be taken away by the vultures, or the eagles is the way the words are stated there. Eagles were vultures. This was a veiled reference, I believe, to the Romans, whose symbol was the eagle. Eagles are a type of vulture which carries off its prey and drops them off on the rocks to kill them and then swoop down to finish them off and eat them up. This statement would not fit a rapture at all. Luke 17 verse 37 totally does not work in a rapture scenario. But it does fit the idea of the Romans coming and carrying away the Jews into captivity and to slavery and consuming them there outside the land. And that's the way I interpret that. I do not see that as a rapture text at all. Okay, the next question is, thanks so much for continuing your solid teaching here on Buzzsprout. It is a blessing. I just downloaded your latest podcast and listened to it. It worked flawlessly. It seems to be a perfect fit for your podcast, since you are not hosting any live questions at this time. Great sound quality, and I like the absence of all the questionable advertisements and the clutter that the Blog Talk Network has on their screen. That really takes too much attention away from your message. Well, I thought that was a good comment. 
those advertisements on Blog Talk were a, a huge factor in my switch over to Buzz Sprout. I did not like all those questionable advertisements either. Thanks for your good comments on that. Another dear brother said this, A dear preterist brother that I am in contact with appears to be faltering in his Christian faith. He said that he has no more energy to continue composing emails about the preterist view because he is no longer convinced that the New Testament and Old Testament text are reliable and inspired and accurate. Unfortunately, he has been listening to too many liberals and skeptics and critics. There are many weak Christians out there like this dear brother who think that they're the first one to ever encounter textual criticism and liberal skepticism. Do you have any specific resources that I can suggest for this dear, hurting, confused brother? Have you done any teaching on this subject? Well, here's my reply. The Bible has its own way of refuting the textual critics. It is the best resource out there. Nothing else even comes close. And I have read a bunch of books and resources and have a bunch of them in my library. And I've studied textual criticism under liberals and skeptics. So I know what their evidence is and have found satisfying answers to it right there in the biblical text itself. In my apostolic canonization series of studies, I gave quite a bit of explanation on how the New Testament books were written and copied, distributed, collected, and preserved for future generations. Considering that we have over 8,000 known fragments of New Testament text available for study, a few of which go all the way back to the second century, drastically more than we have for any other religious or philosophical books of antiquity, It should not be surprising to us uh, that the Bible is reliable because it's far better attested than any other ancient book out there. However, it should not be surprising also that some of the later copyists made some mistakes. And those mistakes are what the liberals use to discredit the inspiration and integrity of our Bible. But those mistakes were not there in the original autographs. They were made by later copyists. And so that doesn't at all impact the integrity of our Bible. There's no mistakes on any critical doctrines anywhere in our New Testament. All the mistakes are simple spelling errors and copy errors that were made, which don't really amount to a hill of beans, doctrinally speaking. In fact, We shouldn't be surprised at all that there were some mistakes in the Bible, given the way they hand-copied all those manuscripts. We should be more surprised that there isn't more mistakes than there are, given the way they were copying all that stuff by hand. Amazing that they didn't make a lot more mistakes. Those mistakes were introduced into the text by the copyist. And I have all these studies that explain that process in one big PDF document entitled Apostolic Canonization. If any of our listeners would like to have that document, simply email me and request it. It's free for the asking. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. That one is uh, the number one. It's not spelled out. Preterist1 at preterist.org. Ask for that apostolic canonization document. I think that'll really help you understand how all these mistakes got into the text of our Bible. Well, the Bible is like a pet lion on a leash, being attacked by a tiny little chihuahua puppy. Do we step in front of the lion and defend him from that wimpy pooch? Or do we unleash the lion and let him defend himself? That's the way the Bible is. It's like a a roaring lion. He doesn't need our help to defend himself. If people will just read the Bible, they'll see the answers to the liberal attack. 
The Bible has its own way of refuting the liberals and the skeptics if people will just read it and understand it. Back 35 years ago, when I was attending Adelphi University to finish my bachelor's degree in liberal arts and religious studies, I had a couple of religion professors who were determined to destroy my faith in the credibility of the Bible. They popped the time statements on me, thinking that would blow away my faith. When I answered them with the preterist view, it blew them away. They had never heard that position before and were at a loss on how to respond to it. I have never forgotten how powerful the Word of God really is when it's rightly understood. That's the problem with this dear brother that this listener spoke about. He evidently does not understand the Bible correctly and is therefore unable to cope with the arguments of the skeptics and the critics. In my courses there at Adelphi, those two religion professors were constantly criticizing the Bible to make it look ridiculous, old-fashioned, inconsistent, and full of errors. But the more I simply read the Bible and let it sink deeply into my psyche, the more I could see through the wimpy, faithless arguments of the form critics and the text critics. They call themselves higher criticism, not. They do not worship and adore and believe in the same God that I do. It really boils down to faith. Those who really believe Jesus was supernaturally and miraculously raised from the dead have no problem believing the rest of the Bible. Conversely and unsurprisingly, Those who have difficulty believing in the supernatural, miraculous, bodily resurrection of Jesus will also have difficulty believing in the rest of the miracles of the Bible, including the miraculous inspiration and miraculous preservation of the Bible itself. Those who read the Bible with faith in God and faith in Jesus will be rewarded with an understanding of the truth. But those who doubt are like the waves driven by the wind, cast about by every wind of doctrine that blows through. If God can raise Jesus bodily from the grave, then he can easily keep his word pure for all generations to come. So it all boils down to how much faith people have in a supernatural and sovereign God. Is he smart enough and powerful enough to inspire his word, get it written down accurately for us, and then preserve it for all generations to come? If he isn't, then he's not God, and there really is no God at all, and the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales. But if there really is a God who has the nature that the Bible describes, omniscience, omnipotence, immutable, immortal, eternal, purely holy, infinitely just in all his ways, then we can have total confidence in his word if it's coming from a God like that. Again, it boils down to faith and belief that there is a God and that he is a rewarder of those who seek for him. Have that dear brother read back through the whole Bible again, praying that God will show him the truth. God gives his truth to those who seek for it and ask him for it. Without that kind of faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Does that dear brother believe that God exists? If he does, then by reading through the Bible, he will understand the truth once again and rid himself of all of his skepticism and doubts that the liberal critics have poured into his brain. The best thing is not to even listen to those guys in the first place. But uh, if you got to listen to them, Be sure you do so in the context of Scripture. Let Scripture answer them.
Okay, next uh, question we want to deal with here real quickly. Person says here, I am now beginning to realize that as I study this rapture idea, I'm entering into a controversial area of preterism. For instance, I just received this objection to the rapture in my email. It's Kurt Simmons' latest newsletter with his article entitled, History, A Final Objection to the Literal Rapture. He does not care about how you explain the biblical text, since he believes history clearly shows that there was no rapture. Well, that's a very interesting comment. Here's my reply. Controversial is a nice way of describing this whole discussion about the rapture. Evidently, our dear brother, Kurt Simmons, does not realize the implications of what he just said in that newsletter. He is using uninspired and fallible history to overturn the clear teaching of Scripture. Now think about that. He's using uninspired writings to overturn inspired writings. Is that valid? In his newsletter, he says basically that the so-called Christians who were still alive in Pella after 70 AD are proof positive that there was no rapture. In that effect, that is letting history invalidate the Word of God, just like the scribes and Pharisees did in the first century. They used their traditions to invalidate the Word of God. Whenever anyone takes that high of a view of history and tradition, they have just admitted that they have no allegiance to the Bible as our inspired, infallible, and absolutely authoritative guide. In that effect, he is admitting that he does not care what the Bible teaches about a first century rapture, because a rapture would contradict his understanding of history and church tradition. That's the same kind of argument that the futurists make against the preterist view, except that they substitute the word parousia for the word rapture. They say, we know the preterist view cannot be correct because history shows that there was no parousia in the first century. Simmons is saying, we know the rapture view cannot be correct because history shows that there was no rapture in the first century. Well, the futurist and Brother Simmons can have all the tradition and history they want. I will stick with the Bible. The biblical statements about the rapture are clear enough. History can only support and explain the Bible. It can never overturn Scripture. In our podcast last time, we showed that the folks in Pella were not true Christians. And that explains why they were still around after 70 A.D. They were left behind because they were not true Christians. That very effectively neutralizes Kurt Simmons's big historical argument. Now maybe he can get back to looking at what the biblical text actually has to say, rather than letting his flawed understanding of history and tradition invalidate the Word of God. Okay, the next comment here that we received from one of you listeners says, I read your PDF lesson outline about Apostle John not living beyond AD 70. I see what you're saying and agree with it. Scripture proves that John did not live beyond AD 70 and that the statements of some of those second century church fathers are not very reliable. Well, I say amen to that. Matthew 20 and Mark 10 show very clearly that James and John would not live and remain until the parousia. Jesus tells them there that both of them would drink his cup that he was about to drink. And that cup that Jesus drank was the cup of martyrdom. He was killed on the cross. And Jesus said that both James and John would drink his same cup. 
Now, in the context there, they had asked Jesus to seat them on his left and right side when he came into his kingdom at his parousia. Now, if they had lived and remained unto the parousia, they would not have experienced physical death. But Jesus here tells them that they are both going to experience physical death. What does that imply? It implies that they're not going to live and remain until his parousia. That means that they did not live until 70 A.D. So they certainly were not around after 70 A.D. Do you see what that implies? Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus tells both James and John that they would drink the same cup of martyrdom that he drank. That implies that they would not live and remain but would be cut short of that by their martyrdom. Uh, By the way, I have a PDF which covers all this information about Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 20 and James and John and how they're going to be drinking the same cup and not living beyond 70. Uh, The title of that PDF is, Did John Live Beyond AD 70? And you can get that, again, just simply by emailing me. It's free, no No big deal. Just request it by email. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. The title again is, Did John Live Beyond AD 70? Well, that'll just about do it for this time. I really enjoyed getting all this feedback from you folks uh, this last week. This was great. Very interesting. Keep sending me your email questions and comments. And we'll share the best of them with our listeners here. Next time, we'll hopefully get back into our studies of the historical narrative. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now where we study the past to shape a better future.